Welcome to The Grizzly Beat, a podcast of Grizzly Times and Louisa Wilcox, where we interview scientific experts, managers, Native Americans, writers, and others to share their knowledge, perspectives, and experience. This comes at a time of enormous interest in the grizzly bear's future as the government proposes to remove federal protections and citizens are asking important questions. We hope the information shared here will help listeners shape their own answers. This is Louisa Wilcox, and welcome to the Grizzly Beat. We're here today with Dr. Jesse Logan, climate expert, forest ecologist, and outdoorsman extraordinaire. Dr. Logan had the insight of predicting an unprecedented climate-driven outbreak of mountain pine beetles in Yellowstone's whitebark pine forest, which we have since witnessed in the last 15 years. Whitebark pine seeds provide a critical food for Yellowstone's grizzly bears, and Dr. Logan is here to explain these interesting relationships as well as his work. Jesse, can you share how you got into research on the grizzly bear and the whitebark pine connection? Sure, I'd be happy to, Louisa. Uh, about mid-career, I was working uh, as a tenured faculty member at Virginia Tech, and it was really a great job. Uh, I had good support. Uh, you know, I loved the, the university there, but I was really never, uh, I guess, content would be the word. And the reason was, you know, I grew up in the, in the West, in the Rocky Mountains, and I just could not adjust to not living uh, in the Rockies, you know, the wildness, the things we have here. So when I had a chance uh, to take a job with the Forest Service in Logan, Utah, I really didn't uh, think about it. You know, I accepted in a heartbeat and wound up uh, in the early 90s in Logan, Utah, working at the Forestry Sciences Lab as project leader on the Westwide Bark Beetle Project. And when, soon after I got to Logan, I got a call from a woman, Dana Perkins, who uh, was working with Tom Swetnam uh, out of the tree ring lab at the University of Arizona on white bark pine, and she was doing a project aging these uh, great ancient uh, old stands. And one thing she found, she was working up in the White Cloud and Sawtooth Mountains, was there was uh, a pretty serious mortality event that occurred in the early 1930s, and she thought maybe this was related, maybe this was mountain pine beetle-caused mortality. So she contacted me and asked if I'd come up and take a look and see what I thought. So I enlisted the former project leader, Gene Ammon, and uh, we took a trip down to the Sawtooth to visit some of Dana's sites. And sure enough, we were able to find uh, evidence that this mortality was caused by mountain pine beetle back in the 30s. And simultaneously, uh, I had been working on a model, mathematical computer model, uh, relating uh, mountain pine beetle population dynamics to weather climate essentially for my entire career. Uh, you know, not the main focus all that time, but off and on. So I had a good uh, model in hand and thought, well, you know, what was going on in the early 30s that might have resulted in this mortality? And uh, it was easy to, to ferret out. The 1930s, uh, particularly the early 30s, were really hot and dry. I mean, just think of the Dust Bowl. And, in fact, the winter of 1932, I think, is probably still the warmest winter on record. 
so, you know, that was uh, a thought. And at about the same time, the first IPCC report came out in 1990 with some pretty serious predictions about climate warming. So we had a model in one hand, and we had predictions of what the future might hold in the other, and some interesting science questions relating to this outbreak that occurred in these high elevation forests. So we put that all together and came up with some uh, pretty startling predictions, as you alluded to, uh, that there could be real trouble uh, in these high elevation forests that typically are just too cold for animals like the mountain pine beetle uh, to make a living. Uh, in so we started to uh, do these computer simulations, and so this is really an interesting project. And uh, I fell in love with whitebark, uh, you know, on the first visit. I grew up in the southern Rockies outside the distribution of whitebark, but these are magnificent, ancient forests uh, in, ama- in amazing places. <laughs> it's just the, the combination, you know. So. I really got interested in the problem, and this was like uh, early 90s, uh, devoted resources to put some sophisticated weather stations up on a place called Railroad Ridge, one of Dana's sites, and it's a, uh, at that time it was a beautiful climax white bark forest at a little over 10,000 feet. And I think the first year we had our weather stations up and going was 1990. 9394 and uh you know that I was called back to the Washington R office uh you know the the then director of the uh insect forest and disease research unit I just wanted to know why I was spending all this money for expensive instrumentation working in an ecosystem where mountain pine beetle really didn't occur and it wasn't a, a problem and you know, I didn't have a really good answer for that. I, I just said, <laughs> well, you know, I think we got some interesting stuff that might happen. And besides, I'd spent the money, so there was not much that could be done. <laughs> so we monitored, kept track, got up on Railroad Ridge a couple of times a year to uh, maintain our weather sites. And gradually, the uh, weather and climate uh, was warming over this period of time. But about 10 years later, and we really found some interesting things with mountain pine beetle ecology at that time as well. For one thing, we found that there was a resident, very low-level population, typically in white bark, and uh, that was really not uh, known or appreciated. But anyhow, uh, there was a, a really hard four-wheel drive road to get up on Railroad Ridge, and in the in the spring of 2003, we crested over the top, and in this beautiful white bark forest where there had been solid green, there was no evidence of mountain pine beetle mortality, all of a sudden there were these brilliant red trees showing up. And mountain pine beetle kills the tree in one summer. The uh, following summer, they turn this very obvious red. So there's no mistaking the sign of mountain pine beetle. And my first thought was, oh, shit, man, it's happening. And sure enough, uh, by 2005, there was significant mortality. In 2006, that system had just about collapsed. And uh, this was a widespread phenomenon throughout the distribution of white bark, including the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. 
And uh, really the, the timing here was very similar. Uh, things started to happen in the Avalanche Peak area around 2003, and in the next four or five years, all across the ecosystem, white bark was just collapsing. Uh, it was, and it's very obvious, as I say, these trees turn a brilliant red in their foliage as the needles die. So, you know, it's obvious to anyone who's looking. Anyhow, I went, uh, uh, and I was aware and had published uh, our findings uh, when things started to happen, and I was aware of the connection between whitebark pine and grizzly bears, and I retired in 2006, moved up to this ecosystem. And so it was uh, really uh, sort of a natural when the first delisting by Fish and Wildlife of uh, the Yellowstone grizzlies came down in 2007 that, uh, you know, I would become a, a part of this whole story as it unfolded. And in some respects, uh, it was fortuitous that I had retired because I was free to uh, write and express uh, what my thoughts were at the time. And uh, even though I was retired, uh, continued research into this problem in this ecosystem for several years after. So, you know, it was a, a kind of a... Uh, alignment or maybe a misalignment of stars, I guess, that uh, really got me into this. So the first effort uh, by the federal government to delist or remove federal protections occurred right after you retired, Jesse, in 2007. Uh, so it was interesting timing. And the federal government uh, removed protections, and you were part of the successful uh, legal effort that restored those protections in 2009. And that legal um, effort turned on uh, the destruction of a key food source, the, one of the key food sources, whitebark pine. And you wrote uh, an important legal affidavit and were key to that legal drama. What was that experience like for you? <laughs> well, first of all, it's a lot of work. Uh, just as, uh, you know, uh, the, the current delisting rule is 53 pages of three-column, nine-point type. So that's a lot to get through. Even without the 473 pages of appendices and the 133-page uh, conservation strategy, and uh, then along with all this, there are 25 pages of references cited in this work. And this is complex stuff. It's not... Uh, trivial uh, information to try and get through. And the comment period is 60 days. Uh, you know, this is a, a really a daunting task. So you really uh, have to be focused and dedicated. And uh, sometimes it's, uh, it's wearing to work on what uh, is really an unfair uh, uh, playing field uh, with, the, you know, with these sorts of time constraints. So it's a lot of work, but, the, you know, the issue is worth uh, whatever uh, you can do. It's unethical not to respond, I think. Uh, back to the 2007 rule, uh, it was just uh, egregiously flawed with respect to uh, the evaluation of what was going on in white bark pine. Uh, there was a direct uh, statement in that delisting rule that 
16% of white bark in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem had experienced some level of mountain pine beetle mortality. And as I said, you know, it's obvious when you look up the high country, uh, even from a distance with binoculars or even without, uh, that something is happening up there. And at that time, no one really knew the level of mortality, but it was obvious it was much greater than 16%. So, uh, you know, you kind of wonder if these guys ever get mud on their boots. Anyone who had been in the ecosystem and traveled around knew there was something big going on. Uh, so uh, it was an easy uh, flaw in the delisting to, uh, to comment on and to document uh, and, as you mentioned, it prepared a brief outlining where the failing was, and it uh, was successful, which uh, in, in the litigation the rule was reversed. Uh, and that's, that's pretty amazing because, as I, as I said before, the deck is really stacked in, in favor of the federal government. When there's a question about an issue like this, uh, the court will take the uh, federal scientist's word on the issue unless it's obvious that something's really wrong. And in this case, uh, it, was, it was clear. And our, uh, you know, evaluation of this 16% uh, eventually uh, was uh, really reinforced uh, by an aerial survey I was involved with, and uh, you helped get together, as a matter of fact, uh, that we conducted in 2009. And we found that more like 95% of the white bark had experienced some level of mortality rather than the 16% that was claimed in the uh, delisting rule. And in fact, of, of that, uh, over 50% at that time of white bark had experienced uh, mortality levels that would really uh, impact the, all the important ecological services that white bark provides. And, you know, providing an essential food resource for grizzlies is important, but it's only one of the many things uh, that white bark, as both a foundation and keystone species, provide uh, for this ecosystem. So, uh, you know, the, uh, the first response, it was a lot of work, but the bottom line was uh, it ended in su successful reversal of, uh, of that uh, ill-founded sort of uh, decision on the part of fish and wildlife. So, Jesse, here we are uh, seven or so years later, and we have another um, grizzly bear delisting rule out on the streets, and here you are devoting a considerable amount of your time, again, reviewing, uh, you know, many hundreds of pages of government documents uh, to justify the removal of grizzly bear protections and allow trophy hunting, and um, you, as, you as a scientist are putting your science brain on the problem, and what are your thoughts on this this time around? Well, uh, the ecology really hasn't changed, uh, just the political uh, landscape has. Uh, as far as uh, hunting, and particularly trophy hunting of grizzlies, uh, you know, I, I guess I should, in the, in the uh, interest of full disclosure, uh, indicate, you know, I'm some of the best times of my life have been spent hunting. Uh, but I 
I use or eat everything I kill, and killing is just uh, really a, a small part of it. But no one is hunting grizzlies uh, to eat them. You know, this is, as you said, this is a trophy hunt uh, that's being uh, legalized by this action. And killing an animal like a grizzly, the very embodiment of wilderness, of wildness, you know, just to hang a head on a wall or something like that, I, to me it's not ethical. So I have this, you know, that's, that's my personal opinion. opinion. But, as a, you know, to try and divorce myself from that and be objective about uh, what that means, this uh, past uh, year, 2015, uh, there were, what, close to 60 known fatalities of grizzlies in the ecosystem? And so that translates to, what, 70 bears killed out of a population of 700. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So, you know, you're, you're removing 10% of the population in one year of perhaps the slowest reproducing mammal in North America. And uh, that's not... This past year is not an anomaly. It's part of a trend. The conflict, the number of bears that are, are killed in the ecosystem are on the rise and continue to be. So I don't think it takes a Ph.D. in population ecology to understand that killing 10% of the population in one year is not sustainable. In my opinion, turning over, uh, and this occurred with, threatened and endangered species protection. It was, you know, it's a federal law, uh, and you're in, you're in trouble with the feds if you kill a grizz. But if you put that uh, in the hands of the states of Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana uh, to varying degrees uh, antagonistic to the very idea of large carnivore, carnivores to begin with, I think a lot of the, those laws are going to be replaced with a wink and a nod. Oh, I was in danger, so I shot the bear. Okay, mate, go on, on you go. You know, I, uh, mm -hmm. even with protection, you have this level of, of mortality that's occurring, simply not sustainable. And in my opinion, uh, this would be uh, the beginning of a downward spiral uh, leading to extinction or expatriation, however you want to say it. You know, it's a pretty simple uh, formula. Births minus deaths equals population growth. And if deaths are, are greater than births, which is a very slow birth rate, as we said, then the population declines. It's that simple. And hmm. so uh, I, don't, uh, I don't think it's uh, a, a difficult question. Uh, it's uh, morally and scientifically unfounded. Jesse, back to the white bark pine issue for a minute. You hear a lot from the Forest Service that you used to work for that trees regrow. And the Forest Service is putting a lot of resources into white bark pine restoration efforts these days. There's an invasive disease, white pine blisterus, that's affecting white pine, bark pine also and precipitating a lot of restoration work. What do you think the prospects are for white bark pine to regrow in the Great Yellowstone ecosystem? Well, you know, uh, disturbance in general, ecological disturbance is a complex issue, and sometimes what's apparent isn't. 
uh, as the case with fire. For you know, for many years, fire was just held as uh, as this destructive force, and it became clear after many years of fire suppression that it's really an important part of the ecosystem. But you've got to put that in context. And the same, uh, you know, uh, issue with white bark. I think we need to really think about what's going on. And you're right, nothing lives forever. Trees die. Uh, no question about that. But when I try and consider what uh, the situation is with white bark, uh, I can't help but be uh, discouraged. Uh, there are several factors uh, that are impacting the population. First, the 88 fires. Uh, the 88 fires in Yellowstone burned large areas of whitebark pine. Uh, and whitebark reproductive strategy is well positioned to uh, recolonize relatively small patchy fires. But these huge areas that burned in 88 in whitebark have uh, not come back. And uh, I spend, you know, many days skiing in the Clover Mist fire. And in the white part, part of that uh, forest, there's essentially zero uh, regeneration. And, in fact, if anybody's interested in experiencing, checking this out, uh, you know, I'd be happy to, uh, to take someone in uh, on skis. The skis, the best way to travel in in these situations because all the downfall and things covered with snow, it's uh, fast travel and convenient. Anyhow, uh, the 88 fires removed uh, maybe up to 30% of the white bark, and that's, a lot of that has simply not come back. Then beginning in 2003, as we've mentioned, uh, unprecedented uh, mountain pine beetle activity uh, resulted in a over a period of six years as uh, taking out another, you know, 50% or so of the remaining trees uh, and uh, impacting 95% uh, of, the, of the stands, and that was 2009, so that's been seven years ago. And on top of this is an introduced disease, white pine blister rust, and that's more in, uh, insidious, really, than the bark beetles. The bark beetle kills a tree or the tree kicks the bark beetle out. It's that simple. But with blister rust, the tree's infected, and it may take 20 years, uh, and some trees recover, but it may take 20 years before the tree actually dies. But the, the mode of infection tends to be at the terminal tips uh, of the branches, and that's where the cones are produced. So... Often in blister rust trees, you'll have a green tree that looks alive, but reproductively it's not, it's dead. It's not producing cones. So it's, you know, we call the bark beetle forest ghost forest because when the bark uh, weathers away, they turn this kind of ghostly gray. You might call a, a blister rust infected uh, forest a zombie forest because it looks alive, but it's not producing cones. So we have three things that have happened over a really short period of time, the 88 fires, the unprecedented bark beetle outbreak that started in 2003, and this continuing uh, increasing level of blister rust infection. And you mentioned the, uh, the Forest Service uh, is going to a great amount of uh, cost and effort to produce blister rust resistant seed stock. But 
uh, in this ecosystem, white bar takes about 50 years before it even starts producing cone. So even if you could replant a forest and on the scale that we're talking about of uh, mortality that's occurred here, you, it, you know, in the most rugged, the most remote, remote part of the ecosystem, even if you could do that, you know, it's going to be 50 years before you, you start to reap the benefits as far as the grizzly is concerned. So in the short term, the impact is not recoverable. We have lost that component, that important component of the ecosystem that was providing the most critical food for bears in the system. In the long run, I think it really is necessary to adopt a strategic approach. It appears to me that a lot of what's being done is simply replanting blister rust resistant trees in places where white barks already had serious problems. And the expectation is in the future that these places are not going to be suitable habitat for white bark. So we need to, to think strategically. There are places uh, and there are, uh, where maybe there is a future for white bark in the long term in this ecosystem, and that's a tree line and above tree line. So I think there's some really important uh, research question, uh, questions to address, is how to use these blister rust resistant trees in a way that Clark's Nutcracker, who plants the white bark, uh, will help disperse them and re-establish re, uh, these forests in places where they may have a future at high elevations where climate still is more resilient to climate change. And blister rust is only one of the problems. Uh, you know, I mentioned that uh, there's also important work to be done, uh, perhaps finding trees that are more resistant to beetles and select for uh, a resin response that, uh, you know, will help the tree defend itself. There's no reason to expect trees that are resistant to blister rust are also going to be resistant to beetles or vice versa. These are probably pretty independent. And then I think uh, it's really uh, a valuable thing to try and better understand the establishment of white bark at, at tree line and above tree line. So there's, you know, there's research that can be done. There are strategic approaches we can think about, but these are long-term responses. Uh, the thing that uh, is impacting the disturbance that's impacting grizzlies and will in surely my lifetime uh, are, it, are, are not going to be recoverable. They're lost. This is Louisa Wilcox with the Grizzly Beat. Next week you can listen to the second part of the interview with Dr. Jesse Logan when he talks about how the mountain pine beetle an insect the size of a grain of rice and how it shapes the whole ecosystem that grizzly bear and other species depend on. And more on his fascinating career studying climate change during the hostile bush years and how wilderness has shaped who he is. Mm -hmm.